morning, all. Happy Father's Day to the dads. Kids, you are dismissed with Miss Jane there in the back. <clears throat> As we are about to dive into a psalm that reminds us of just how important it is to gather for worship, it might seem like, man, Tim has been talking a lot about church attendance lately. I mean, we get it. We should come to church if we can. We're here, aren't we? Um, let me just make three quick comments along those lines before we begin. First, my own kids are homesick today. I get their reasons why people stay home. I want to make sure we keep saying that. Second, one of the beauties of consecutive expository preaching means that you can't duck a topic because you feel like your people might be getting sick of it. So, as we're preaching through the Psalms of Ascent, and as today's psalm happens to be about gathering for worship, that's the task that God has given us this morning. And third, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe God set it up this way. Uh, we're living in a time in which it's becoming so common for someone to say, I'm a Christian, but I don't really do the church thing. So I wonder if God breathed into our series planning beyond our own ingenuity to hit, make sure we hit on this topic a few times without necessarily even intending to when we laid it all out. In any case, it's great to be with you all for worship this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If what I'm about to say isn't true of you, it almost certainly has been true of someone close to you. You believe in God. You actually believe Jesus rose from the dead. You even feel some measure of affinity, some measure of affection for Jesus, maybe. But church? No thanks. Now, five different people who feel that way will have five different reasons why they feel that way about church. But haven't we all known someone who was there? And if we're honest, haven't many of us been there ourselves? That's one attitude toward church. No thanks. On the flip side of that coin, we have a contrasting reality. And it's this. Even with all the concerning and highly publicized stats about declining church attendance in America, gathering for worship with other Christians is still the most popular thing that Christians do. In fact, add up all the spectator sporting events and all the golf foursomes and all the fishing expeditions taking place today, and even on Father's Day, there are still more Americans at church this morning than at all of those combined. And remember, this is a voluntary activity. Apart from a few teenagers, begrudging spouses, almost nobody is forced to go to church. Millions and millions choose to do what we're doing right now, week after week, just because it's sincerely what they most want to do with their Sunday morning. Why? Maybe that's a question that came to your mind when Louise read those opening words of Psalm 122 a moment ago. I was glad, the psalmist says, when they came to me, and when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Maybe you thought, why are so many people so glad to get to participate in worship services? Would you turn to Psalm 122 if you haven't already? 
This is one of the Psalms of Ascent, these 15 songs that God's people would sing as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for their worship gatherings. And sure, there were some differences between their worship services and, for example, this one this morning. But this psalm is unmistakably about the joys of gathering for worship in the midst of God's people assembled, what we would call church. So King David, we're told right at the beginning that he is the author of this psalm. Why does he feel this excitement about worship services? Well, you and I often don't. And then after King David, the pilgrims who would sing this song on their three times a year journeys to Jerusalem in the decades and centuries after David wrote it, what were they supposed to do when they didn't feel the gladness that's named in the lyrics of this song? Those are questions that we will be leaning into today. Here's how the passage breaks down. Uh, I borrowed this outline from Willem van Gemmeren. I couldn't improve on his headings for each section. The pilgrim's joy, the pilgrim's praise, and the pilgrim's prayer. Joy, praise, prayer. We'll apply each section to our own relationship to church. First, the pilgrim's joy, verses 1 and 2. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. In the early months of COVID, uh, Sarah and I purchased a small inflatable bounce house for the boys. We got an incredible amount of mileage out of that purchase. We set it up indoors, outdoors. It seemed like they spent most of the year bouncing on that thing. But then last month, all the grandparents pooled their resources together to buy the boys a trampoline. So the other day, after a few weeks of experiencing the superior bounce of the trampoline, our son dove into the old bounce house and said, Hey, what's wrong with this? Why doesn't it bounce anymore? We had to explain to him, hey, the bounce house actually bounces as well now as it ever did. You just experienced the bounce of the trampoline now. So, question. What makes David, who has bounced on everything that bounces, so to speak, conclude that church is the trampoline and everything else is just a bunch of little inflatables? I mean, here's a king who's got riches, delicacies, fame, servants, women, but he's geeked about going to church service? Listen to the giddiness as he writes. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. It's like he can't believe he's actually in the city, right on the threshold of entering into the worship service. When was the last time you felt that when your alarm went off for church? I don't ask that in a shaming way at all. I just ask for a purpose of reflection. How many felt a surge of endorphins when you were woken up this morning and realized it's Sunday? Let's be honest with each other. Nobody feels that all the time. Guess what? Even when you read the other Psalms, not even David felt this all the time. But when we don't feel it, in other words, when the beach or the golf course or another hour of sleep looks like the trampoline while Sunday service looks like the little old bounce house, David's words here are meant to recalibrate us to reality, I think. In other words, verses 1 and 2, they're a picture 
of what we feel like when we are seeing clearly. When no sin is getting in the way. When all cylinders are firing in our spiritual lives. When all lies have been identified and decisively rejected. That's not to say that when the words of verses 1 and 2 aren't bubbling up naturally from the depths of my soul, it's an occasion to beat myself up. That's not it. But it is to say that a dry moment like that one is an opportunity to diagnose where and how my perspective got thrown off along the journey. And aren't there so many tools that our enemy uses to throw off our perspective in such a way that a church becomes a chore rather than a delight? He uses woundedness. We've been hurt at church, so we respond by sealing ourselves off from getting wounded like that again. He uses companions, those around us maybe, during a certain season, don't prioritize church. So as we join them in doing other things on Sunday morning, we gradually forget, why did I ever delight in church again? Third, plain old sin. The more we cherish sin, the less interested we are in the discomfort that we may experience when we hear God's word and see God's people again. Eugene Peterson, pastor who died a few years back, names... Uh, in his book, uh, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, we've been referring to that book a lot during this series. He refers to some reasons why people used to give him, as a pastor, why they didn't go to church. Kind of lame excuses, right? Then here's what he says. There was a time when I responded to such statements with simple arguments that exposed them as flimsy excuses. Then I noticed it didn't make any difference. If I showed the inadequacy of one excuse, three more would pop up in its place. So... I don't respond anymore. I listen with a straight face and go home and pray that that person will one day find the one sufficient reason for going to church, which is God. If your one consuming desire in life is God, that quest is going to lead you here or to some other church for corporate worship. Why is that true? Because there's simply no other context in which God makes his presence known like he does in the context of the worship service. And David knew that, which is why, to him, even the world's great diversions had the bounce of a little inflatable compared to the trampoline bounce of the church service. Right? Sure, there's some fleeting pleasures out there, not the deep joy that's accessible here. So let's look at David's words in the rest of the passage. Maybe by the end you'll agree with Eugene Peterson that it's far less interesting to hear the excuses people give for not worshiping than it is to discover the reasons they do worship. The pilgrims praise, verses 3 to 5. And note as I reread this that the praise is directed actually to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, he speaks directly to the city. Built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. <clears throat> if a trip to Hollywood is on your bucket list, is that on anybody's bucket list? We don't have like a big Hollywood congregation. I don't think there might be. Um, it's, it's almost certainly not because of the food or the architecture, or the shopping. Some reasons why you'd go to other cities. Why do people want to visit Hollywood? Because of the people, right? The famous people, past and present, who are associated with Hollywood. And it's like that with Jerusalem. 
while the authors of scripture can sometimes speak fondly of some cultural features of the city, ultimately, the specialness of Jerusalem is not that it's bigger than all the other great cities of the world, or that its music scene or architecture are necessarily objectively superior to that of all the other great cities of the world. What's special about Jerusalem is that this is the city associated with God, the one true God. This is where he placed his throne. And if this is the place where God chose to make his home, it's fitting that this city would be the three things that David chose it to be here in verses 3 through 5. First, it's a place of unity. Verses 3 and 4. Picture 12 tribes that didn't always like each other, nevertheless coming together from all over the countryside like streams joining into a river three times a year, all just because they want to be with God. Second, it's a place of praise. The second half of verse 4. The point of their coming together is to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And somehow, the fact that it's commanded, verse 4, doesn't detract from the delight experienced in doing it. And third, it's a place of justice, verse 5. Thrones for judgment, we see there. Which are one and the same, apparently, as the thrones of the house of David. Because, in this special city, the reign of the Lord and the reign of his anointed don't compete, but they go hand in hand. In other words, the Lord rules through his appointed king who sits on David's throne. Now, somebody might be wondering why plural thrones here in verse 5. File that away. I'll address that in the highlights email this week. But David speaks of the city where God makes his home as a place of unity, a place of praise, a place of justice. Which all seems sort of fragile when you think about it. Here's what I mean. If you're missing one of those three, any one of those three, if, if one of those three is broken, then aren't the other two thrown in jeopardy? So what do we do then with the historical reality that these words, verses 3 through 5, have never been perfectly true of Jerusalem? Right? Not during any of the centuries when the worshipers would sing this psalm on their journey to Jerusalem. Not even in the time of David himself whose own son conspired against him within this city. The fact is that at many times during Jerusalem's history, the city has been far from this ideal. So what gives? Commentators over the centuries have agreed that there's an idealized, aspirational flavor to the picture of Jerusalem that's painted here. And in the scope of the grand sweep of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we can see that one function of this idealistic psalm is to point forward to its ultimate fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem to come, where all of history is heading toward, where these words will finally be a perfectly realized reality. Won't that be awesome? But there's a more immediate application for us as we zoom out to the whole biblical storyline, namely that this psalm isn't only meant to be a picture of the future Jerusalem, it's also meant to be a picture for us of what the church is meant to be. Look at how Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24 says it, when it speaks of those of us who have put our faith in Christ. You have come to Mount Zion, you already have, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you're already there. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, those of us who have put our faith in Christ are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem now. Which makes the words about Jerusalem in this psalm a blueprint for us. So let's use Psalm 122 to take inventory. Are we a place of unity? The sort of unity envisioned in verses 3 and 4 goes beyond the absence of ill will. So here at North Sub, are we, are we, are we settling for non-hostility and calling it unity? Or... Are we doing the hard relational work with each other that's required to become a fabric woven tightly together? A city bound firmly together, to use the language of verse 3. Second, are we a place of praise, like heartfelt praise, giving thanks to the name of the Lord our God, verse 4. Third, are we a place of justice? And it may be helpful to use a specific example for this one. The global church is facing reckoning right now, isn't it, regarding the fact that Christian churches haven't always been places of justice when it comes to, in particular, victims of abuse in our midst. Friends, make no mistake, if the church that sweeps under the rug allegations of abuse in attempts to protect its own reputation, for example, is not the church of justice that's pictured in verse 5. When God's rule through his anointed king, is embraced, his people avail ourselves of all appropriate means to see that justice is done, that the innocent are protected, and that the guilty are called to account. Now, with respect to those important diagnostic questions, are we a place of unity? Are we a place of praise? Are we a place of justice? Compared to many of you, I'm a relative newcomer to this church. Five years I've been here, five years is long enough that I feel quite comfortable saying, man, despite our imperfections, by God's grace, you all have made this, I think, a place of unity, a place of praise, a place of justice. Here's what I mean on unity. The ethnic diversity in this room outpaces the ethnic diversity in the communities surrounding this church. We have people who took different approaches in the voting booth this past fall, who held different attitudes toward masks, and who made different choices regarding vaccines. We have Cubs fans and Sox fans. We have Bears fans, and we even have some Packers fans. Yet, these very people, with every reason to mistrust each other, nevertheless, we break bread together, we serve alongside each other with laughter, we teach each other's children. I could go on. Are we a place of praise? Well, our church loves to lift up songs and prayers of thanksgiving to our God. On justice, there's an eagerness here to do what's right. And as much as we continue to lament the horrific abuse that did take place here, uh, that came to light six years ago, when that abuse was reported in our congregation, no attempt was made to protect the perpetrator or to cover anything up. So I find myself this morning singing the praises, honestly, of North Suburban Church, this local expression of the heavenly Jerusalem, with delight that this is where I get to worship. Just as David sang the praises of the imperfect Jerusalem of his day. Now, especially if you're in my generation or younger, 
that assessment might not seem edgy enough. Like, it's not particularly in vogue to praise the church at this moment. In some Christian circles, it actually feels, I don't know if any of you have felt this way, it feels in some circles that I'm in, like, the test of how spiritual you are is how much angst and criticism you're willing to bravely direct toward the church. And there's a time for that, there is. But here's the thing, David loves God, so he finds himself writing love songs to the Jerusalem that God loves despite her imperfections. Just like people love Hollywood because it's where you encounter celebrities, David and God's people love the church because it's where we encounter God. If we can name praiseworthy things about Jesus but can't name praiseworthy things about the church that he loved enough to die for, the church over which he is presently presiding from his heavenly throne, by the way, something doesn't add up. Let me say again to make sure it's, it's not missed here. Prophetic challenge to the church is not only acceptable, it's necessary, but if we never praise what God praises, if we never call lovely what God has made lovely, his church, we run the risk of degrading the object of God's affections. What would you do if someone degraded the spouse on whom you have set your affections? So, out of style as it may be, to express loyalty to and affection for the church is to express loyalty to and affection for the one who loved her enough to shed his blood on her behalf. Third and finally and most briefly, Pilgrim's Prayer, verses 6 through 9. Look at it. Pray, David says, for the peace and shalom of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers, speaking directly to Jerusalem now. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Uh, anyone know what the name uh, of the city Philadelphia, what the name Philadelphia means? What's it mean? City of brotherly love, right? Um, the Philadelphia is often mocked isn't it, for its inability to live up to its name, right, particularly among their ruthless sports fans. Who's ever been to Philadelphia? Yeah. Um, they've cheered when opposing players have gotten injured. They've thrown batteries at opposing teams. And in 1968, anybody know what they did? Infamously, during a halftime show at an Eagles game, they pelted Santa with snowballs. Supposed to be a city of brotherly love. There's a little bit of the same dynamic going on here in our text. The root of the name Jerusalem is wrapped up in the word shalom. In other words, Jerusalem is supposed to be the city of peace. But for much of its history, this, there has been the opposite of shalom in Jerusalem. The events of the last month or two aren't new. As you know, strife has characterized much of the history of that city. So, the psalmist and those who sing this song after him, pray for the shalom of Yerushalayim. And remember what shalom is. It's nothing missing, nothing broken. It's the wholeness of a tightly woven fabric of right relatedness to God, to each other, and to the world. 
We don't know to what degree Jerusalem was actually a city of Shalom at the time David wrote this. We don't know to what degree Jerusalem was a city of Shalom at the time when the Psalms were compiled in their final form. But we see here the psalmist and consequently the later pilgrims praying for it. So, in contentious times, singing this song became this sort of prayer. Please God, help Jerusalem live up to its name. In peaceful, prosperous times, maybe singing this song became this sort of prayer. God, now that we've had a taste of Jerusalem living up to its name, would you make it so in fullness? Then centuries after David wrote the words of this psalm, and you notice it bounces back and forth from speaking about Jerusalem to speaking directly to Jerusalem, one particular pilgrim came along to worship in this city. He entered Jerusalem, perhaps singing this song, and wept that Jerusalem wasn't living up to these words. In his grief, he cried out with his own lament, addressed to the city. Here's what he said. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. When our Lord Jesus looks at the state of the church today, does he still weep over the places where the shalom of Psalm 122 has not yet been realized? And what about us? Are we joining the psalmist and the pilgrims in praying for the peace of his church? Here's how much you and I can do to make the church experience the shalom that Christ purchased with his blood. Here's how much God's spirit can do comparatively, to make the church experience the shalom that Christ purchased with his blood. So we need to pray. If you're joining us for this summer of prayer, where we're emphasizing that in our personal lives and in our corporate life, would you add the shalom of the church to your prayer list? The joy, the praise, the prayer in this psalm all flow out of a heart for the church. So our big idea today is this. Let's cultivate a heart for the church. Let's cultivate a heart for the church. We won't always naturally have it, so we work at it. Let's cultivate a heart for the church. I pray that God has used the reading of this psalm to awaken someone's heart for the church. But we can actually do more than read a psalm like this. We can actually pray it. Have you ever prayed a psalm? If not, Add this to your prayer toolkit this summer when you want to pray but don't know what to pray. Here's what you do. Just take a psalm, open up to it. We'll do it with this one that we looked at today. You might just do something like this. You have to read it. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Lord, I, I, I don't feel that gladness that David felt, but I want to feel it. Produce it in me, Lord, so that I'm as fired up for church as David was. Okay, let's move on. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Lord, you've decreed that I join God's people for worship because I need it. It's the lifeblood of my relationship with you. 
it unites me to your people. And it sets me on your path. And as I do it, even when I don't feel like it, please work in my heart in such a way that I start to feel like it again. Okay, now last section of the text. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Lord, help your shalom, wholeness, to be visible through your people gathered all over the world. And help it to be especially so in this local manifestation of your church here in Deerfield. It's not fancy or sophisticated, right? You just pray like that. And you can do this with any psalm, by the way. Read the verses and just pray what the Lord brings to your heart, as related or unrelated as your prayers may seem to the point, so to speak, of what's there. Those here this morning who know the Lord already, the call to cultivate a heart for the church is a call to expend energy toward this goal, even when we don't feel like it. I don't know if I can say it any better than Eugene Peterson says it. Here's what he says. We can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God in worship, that command from verse 4, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. In other words, Friends, don't wait until you feel it. If you're here this morning with us that don't know the Lord, there's a joy available to you that's deeper than anything you've experienced. There's an encounter that you were made for. And I say you were made for it because there is a God who knit you together so that when this note was played, it would strike a chord within your soul. If you've never had this feeling, I was made for this. Like your whole life you've been bouncing on inflatables, but now you're on the trampoline. If you've never had that feeling, seek it, friend. Ask for it. The God who went to the greatest lengths to purchase your joy wants nothing more than that you would find it. Let's pray. What a privilege, Lord you've given us to gather together to worship you to encounter you in the body uh, that's made up of many members and even this morning as we've been ministered to by a variety of people bringing a variety of gifts to bear to minister to each of us even as the conversations we had before church and the ones that we will have after church will encourage us and strengthen us and challenge us for the week ahead, we thank you, Lord, for designing this gathering and for knitting us together in such a way that we are made for this. God, in those moments when we don't feel like that, in those moments when we don't desire to come together with our sisters and brothers for worship, please cultivate it in us. Help us to seek after it instead of passively letting it uh, die away. And help us to come alongside each other in that quest as we encourage one another to keep stoking those flames, those sparks in our souls of love for you and love 
for your gathered assembly. In Jesus' name, amen.